1: Of yours. How much value does Pepsi get from its relationship with the Dallas Cowboys? How do the Philadelphia 76ers generate $250,000 in annual new revenue given its on-the-court struggles? How much should the Major League Baseball teams pay their players based on their on-field, off-field performance? These aren't hypotheticals, but answers that block six analytics is answering for leading companies in the sports industry. Adam Grossman is the CEO and founder of the sports sponsorship technology and analytics firm Block 6 Analytics, whose clients include Pepsi, Gatorade, Dallas Cowboys, uh, Cleveland Browns, Philadelphia Philadelphia 76ers, and Comcast Sportsnet, among others. In addition, he's a lecturer for Northwestern University's Masters of Sports Administration where he has developed two classes and teaches them their classes focused on uh, developing and communicating strategic insights through data. Adam is also the co-author of The Sports Strategist, Developing Leaders for a High-Performance Industry, the featured book at the 2015 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. He's written for Forbes, The Washington Post, The Chicago Tribune, and Comcast Sportsnet Chicago. And he's been featured as an industry expert on CNN, Marketplace, uh, SB Nation Radio and The Post Game. Adam is a longtime friend of mine and MBA Missions. Um, I'm actually, full disclosure, a small seed investor in B6A, Block 6 Analytics um, seed round. I think that bodes well for the show as I have a, a real comfort with him and I can... Uh, Uh, I can really hammer him with some questions. Uh, That's tongue in cheek, of course. I am your host, Jeremy Scheinwald Here, Um, I think those who know the podcast know that I've been a long time volunteer, mentor, and avid podcaster for Adventure for America. We've we've done about close to ninety episodes now. Um, You can go back into our catalog and and, uh, cherry pick them if you'd like. Um, Hopefully. We've engaged many entrepreneurs uh, in our podcast and in VFA. What is VFA? Well, Venture for America. Uh, after five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs, to learn more about Venture for America, or to support our work or even to make a donation. You can visit ventureforamerica.org. It's a remarkable fellowship for recent college grads and, um, uh, you know, new college grads, recent college grads, I, I wish it had been around when I was graduating. I, If you know a young entrepreneur, I highly recommend going to the site and directing directing that entrepreneur to the site, telling them about this amazing opportunity. Um, as I noted, I hope you're a, a loyal listener to the podcast. Please take a moment to like our show on iTunes. It helps us get other listeners. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. I'm not that active a tweeter, but hey, why not follow me? Um, you can LinkedIn me. I accept all requests and try to help people out when I can. Um, So anyway, we love listeners. Please tell someone about our show. I've had way too much caffeine today. I think this is a pretty uh, energetic opening. I think uh, let's get to the uh, show. Uh, Let's get to our, our, our episode with my good friend, Adam Grossman of Block 6 Analytics.
0: Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast.
1: Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or, even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories.
0: This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast.
1: No, you, you are looking good. I mean, you lost some weight. You got the beard going. The uh, well, beard's been going for a while. I know you haven't seen it, but it's been going for a while. So. No, I, I have seen the beard. No, I mean, no, no. It's, but it's, right, My now it's kempt. Yeah, it's, it's, this is it's, as
0: kempt I think as you've seen it.
1: Yeah. Is. So I don't know what kind of what kind of um, intro they're going to keep, but, but I'm talking with my good friend Adam Grossman. Um, known each other for a long time now, I guess, but seven, seven years, seven yeah. years, yeah, yeah, yeah for Oof. a long time, uh, It's
0: a long time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh boy, we'll, we'll we'll skip on that. So okay, <laughs> let's talk about uh, let's talk about you, your entrepreneurial journey. Let's talk about uh, Block Six Analytics. Um, let's talk about a lot. But um, uh, you know, you're in the sports analytics business, and um, you yourself were once an athlete. I feel like I should put that in quotes. <laughs> whoa, uh, whoa, I don't know about that. Because I'm saying once an athlete, and then I'm also kind of also trying to pick on you a little bit by saying athletes with quotes. Well, um, I
0: think we can start this and if we're going to start it out, we should start it the way that this podcast is going to go with my Jewish sports hall of fame story. So Okay. Um, okay, and and hopefully I'm 100% sure that the only thing... Or the, I'm pretty sure
1: I'm in that Hall of Fame as well. That's where you're going. Well, yeah. you'll, okay.
0: you'll see. I am not in the Hall of Fame. That's yeah. the point of the story. Okay. So, uh, and, I, and I was going to say, this is probably how the rest of the podcast is going to go. So I guess the, the listeners should get used to it. But yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I, I played goalie for Northwestern um, it, when I was in college. Um, before I had played a single minute, I got an invitation to a Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, and I guess it again goes to show you what level of athletic success you have to get and obtain to be in the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, Right, having played zero minutes in college. It was qualified me because I was on a college team (laughs) um, or a Big Ten team. Um, So I, I, as a college student, there was a cost associated with being in the Hall of Fame. I think it was like 50 bucks. (laughs) And I said, that's too expensive. I do not want to pay the 50 bucks to be in the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. So that immediately should have qualified me because I didn't want to pay for it. (laughs) That's immediately should have put me in the Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. So I still am contending to this day I should be in that Jewish Sports Hall of Fame because, <laughs> because of my decision-making process. So
1: you are you are starting our show by invoking stereotypes. No question. People. Okay. That, that, uh,
0: that's how we got to where we are. I school. have a gripe
1: with the Manitoba <laughs> Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, uh, which is they will only accept individuals as opposed to teams. So I went to Hebrew school in uh, grade 12, and 12th grade as we say in the United States, and uh, we won the provincial championship, and they will not admit our team into the Hall of Fame. I don't think anyone else is really concerned about this, though. We're, even, we're not even a footnote. I, I,
0: I thought Justin Trudeau. This is his number one priority. This is number one. <laughs> okay.
1: I want to ask you a question quickly about your goaltending, uh, which is, statistically speaking, were you a good goalie? It depends what you mean
0: by good goalie. If you mean that, did I get scored on a lot by the opposing team while I was in college? Yes. So I was not a good goalie in that sense. In, in terms the quality of, of
1: those shots, though. But I the, will say, I, you
0: know. when I was playing, we were playing Indiana, which was one of the best teams in the country at the time. And the the game before we played them, one of their players was in Sports Illustrated, and he came in on a breakaway and was like, "This guy was just in Sports Illustrated. There's no chance I am blocking his shot." And he did actually score very quickly after <laughs> I had that thought. So I would say I was a good good enough goalie to make it a Division One team. That the entire time I was on the team, we won one game. So I don't yeah. know what that statistically speaking you can. We were what I played for two years. We were like one thirty two and three right. in my two years on the team. So essentially, you. Loss or you only won one less game than I did in college soccer.
1: So <laughs> the okay, let's. <laughs> I, I have so many questions. Actually, I do you want to continue asking you about college soccer? But I think we should talk about the business. <laughs> uh, so so yeah, you're at Northwestern. Um, you graduated. You know, obviously, have a, sports has been a part of your life, but you went to work in consulting. Um, yeah, and I'm curious if there was like an entrepreneurial spark in you even in those days, or whether you know you kind of you kind of found entrepreneurship later on.
0: No, I definitely found entrepreneurship later on. I would say I was never really interested. I it's not even that I wasn't even interested. It never even crossed my mind that that was something I could do, uh, sports or otherwise. It just was not something, you know, nobody I knew was an entrepreneur. None no of my friends were pursuing any kind of entrepreneurial ventures. It was 2004 when I graduated college. So, you know, Facebook had started right. to take off, but it's not like the entrepreneurial culture that exists in colleges today. So I just, it wasn't even just a thought that I had. Uh, I was recruited out of Northwestern to go to this consulting firm. And then I uh, went to another consulting firm after that. And when I was in business school, I started a, um, a club called the Government and Business Association at NYU Stern, Um, and at NYU starting a club is a lot like starting a business. And that was originally, which is not like at a lot of business schools. A lot of business schools is a lot easier, but our club was the first club that NYU had started in five years. Uh, And it was right at, so I went to business school in September, I started in September of 2008, so. Uh, It was both a good and bad time, I guess, to be in business school because actually a lot of the people a year above me had job offers at Lehman Brothers. So I guess it goes to show you, right? In September they did, in October they didn't, right?
1: (laughs) So they must have stole the offers. Lehman just didn't exist. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Um, So okay, so you're so you're at you're at B school um, when you know during this tumultuous time, and you, I, I find this interesting. Like you go to school and you walk out ready to start B6A. I mean, you did not take a job afterwards, which is like you've just invested all this money. Right. You know, justifiably, I mean, you can invest that kind of money in yourself to be a better entrepreneur. Um, but I'm curious if whether there was, like, you know, family pushback, like, you know, shouldn't you be getting a well, job to pay off this, you know, <laughs> this investment type I think stuff? there's still that family pushback yeah. to get a
0: job. But uh, <laughs> the... Um, the short answer is, and again, I, I know this was disclosed in the introduction, is you know, we did some consulting work in the meantime, and we did some consulting work for your company that helped us, so having that as a safety net... Uh, allowed us to really pursue the business. And I would say, you know, while we started it and I had the idea for it in business school, we really didn't go at it full tilt until 2013. So I graduated in 2010 and we were spending a lot of time doing consulting work and we had some, uh, you know, it was more like consulting-based projects when we first started. So I would say the company now that exists really started in 2013. So that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, part of the reason that people Entrepreneurship still only consists of a very small percentage of graduates from business schools is the exact reason. People have student debts. They have you know loans that they have to pay off. Typically, you know they have to they want to there are a lot of jobs in marketing and consulting and investment banking that are guaranteed to pay a lot more money right away versus when you're obviously starting a new company. You know you're looking for a payoff potentially when you sell the company or you take the company public, but that should be a while. Um. So the rewards can be greater, but the obviously the risk is much greater. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I ever really had that pressure because we had the foundation with consulting, but it's something that I felt a lot.
1: And, you know, it's still something that we, you know, I think about. So, so you know, I've been so far back now, I'm I'm trying to piece it together myself, even even though I've known you all these years. But <laughs> so for, the, for the first three years, so um, you're consulting at our firm, MBA yeah. Mission, and are you iterating on the idea, or just sort yes. of developing it? Like, yeah. It, it, so there's sort of a bit of a pivot, and then
0: yeah. So the original idea, actually, so um, I guess I could probably start out with my background about the companies. So yeah, Block Six Analytics is a sports sponsorship technology and analytics firm. So what we have done is we've created a software as a service or a web-based platform where buyers and sellers of sports sponsorship can go into the platform. They can see how much value they've gotten for a sponsorship, both sponsorships that they've already purchased and potentially that they will purchase in the future. And they can track the value of that sponsorship in near real time. So if I'm uh, one of our clients is the Philadelphia 76ers. If I'm the Philadelphia 76ers, I have all this information that I can share to all of my different partners to say, this is the value that you got with working with uh, working with us. Here are some new ideas for uh, new sponsorship opportunities. Here's, you know, uh, potentially you want to exp- expand your relationship with us. Here's everything that we're doing and here's the reason why we're doing it. And then if I'm a buyer of sports sponsorship, uh, you know, Pepsi being one of our clients, if I'm a buyer of sports sponsorship, I want to get information in near real time so I can make uh, asset allocation. So should I be spending money in television? Should I be spending money uh, in uh, you know in venue, in events, online, in social media? Um, and with Pepsi in particular, they were testing out new ideas and sponsorship uh, based off a relationship they had with the, with the Dallas Cowboys, which at while we're recording this is soon to be our client. Hopefully by the time you're hearing this is our client. <laughs> um, but the idea is that both sides of uh, you know, both the buyer and seller can see the advertising inventory. So the way I came up with that idea is while I was in business school, I interned for the Washington Capitals. So now we're in hockey territory. So Jeremy, it's my
1: comfortable space. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but uh, only one team. I really am. I, I don't follow the NHL. I follow one team. That's right. Yeah. And we might get into that later. Okay. So yeah, um, the
0: so the Washington Capitals, you know, I saw they had a need for a sponsorship platform. So originally the platform was just going to be a place where you could see the assets that were available or you could see what could be sponsored. From that, I came up with the idea of of using business school training essentially to help create a new valuation model for sponsorship that is completely transparent. So you can see everything that we're doing and see why we get the values that we get. And then from that, uh, it took a while to get the model exactly right. Uh, it's taken a long time to get the technology to where we're, and we're still iterating on the technology today. Um, we've built in some new technology, which we can go into later, that leverages artificial intelligence, machine learning, neural networks, uh, natural language processing, which was not even an idea that I would have had when I first started. Um, so, And it took a while. And it's also the sports industry, um, what I like to say at the time is that the sports industry then is kind of where baseball was before Moneyball happened, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an idea that numbers could be helpful, but it wasn't clear and there wasn't like the, a structure for how numbers could be used to help the business side of sports, particularly sponsorship.
1: So maybe make that make that real for us. Like if, it, you know, I mean, you don't have to use an actual sure. client, but like, you know, we're, what was so, uh, you know, what was so, you know, out of whack or, or even appropriate? Like, were you looking around saying like, oh, you know, um, uh, you know the ad, the digital ad during commercial breaks, or during during things that were supposed to be commercial breaks, or you know on the field during an NFL game that sells for X, it should sell for X minus Y, or it should sell for X plus Y. I mean, is that basically?
0: Yeah, that's a part. That's a big part of it. Um, so we're not just a valuation company; we're a technology-based platform that uses analytics. So the valuation is a big piece of what we do, but literally just saying like, what is in my sponsorship, right? And if you're the team, is like, what actually is available to buy, right? Mm-hmm. I, I. Even today, it's sometimes hard to figure that out. So just literally, like getting like what's available to buy. Uh, Also, like teams spend a lot of time creating manual reports that should be automated. So they were spending a lot of time developing PowerPoints that says this is what you got for your sponsorship. In the past, sponsorship was very much a gut level decision. It was kind of you know if you know we're in New York now, if I went to Citi Field and City could see its logo on top of the stadium, it'd be like, oh, that's really cool, I can see City. There's gotta be some value to that. I may not know exactly what it is, but I know there's some value to that. And the way that reporting was typically done, if you were trying to get X plus Y or X minus Y, is we see, here's the picture of your sponsorship in action, if there was any reporting at all. And that's just like not, you know, if you're talking about any other advertising channel, that wouldn't fly, right? And it's still, and what's happened over time and where you know, and I think this is an interesting point. Is you know when you're talking about market and product fit, I think we were a little bit ahead of where the market was, mm. what and for the solution we wanted to have. Where now the market has caught up, and now everything or everything is starting to be numbers, digit, uh, numbers based, quantitative based, data driven based. Um, there's still a narrative element to sports. People love sports, right? And there's right. a lot of reasons people love sports, but using data is becoming much, much a bigger deal in that. So you're thing.
1: saying that like that that maybe this is an oversimplification, but are you oh. saying that pre- prior, you know, 10 years ago, or when I was a kid, 20 years ago, when Target sponsored the Target Center in Minneapolis, was one of the first, if I recall, to to to, to have, like, a naming rights deal, or, you know, when you got the Buick Open or mm-hmm. something like that for golf or something like that, that this was just kind of like, look, we're putting out the number here. If someone wants to take it, take it. And, like, we can't really define how valuable it's going to be for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about, like like, a good way to compare it is like now with, even with Facebook, right? If you go on your own Facebook account and you wanna see digital metrics, I mean, you can see uh, impressions and video views. If you go, like, if you have your own web page and you want Google Analytics, like you can see a lot of information in Google Analytics. You can see unique visitors, you can see time on page, you can see click-through rates. Um, you can see, you know, you can just see a bunch of information by time. It's just, with sports sponsorship, because it's not only digital-based, it's these integrated packages. So there would be something like, you'd have the sign at the Target Center, you'd have a commercial on television, you might have a radio ad, you might have you know a uh, digital billboard uh, on the website. So how would you even collect all that information, aggregate it in a way that makes sense, and then put a value calculation on it? And in the past, it's either that the team itself, the buyer has put a valuation on it and or the seller has put a valuation on it. And again, there wasn't necessarily this need to get like a data-driven decision. As data has become more and more important in other advertising channels. And, you know, we were talking about this before, and this has been publicly reported, you know, companies like Pepsi and Coca-Cola, you know, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars on sponsorship. So the idea of not getting that level of sophistication It's just not going to fly. I mean, people, you know, you're talking about shareholders or you're talking about the media, you're talking about employees, like they're asking for this type of information. They just weren't asking for it in the past. And maybe, you know, people didn't necessarily need it as much in the past where that's changed a lot. It's not just changed in sponsorships. It's changed in all types of advertising. Right. So Actually, it's a good example. So, like, uh, the, the CMO of Procter & Gamble literally said a few weeks ago, all advertising is crap because we don't know how to value it. So it's not just in sports, right? There, right? there is a lot more information, but it's still like, how do you value it? The issue is that there is, and we think this is an issue potentially in the larger advertising space, there is a lack of transparency when it comes to valuation, because if you have to show somebody how you got value, then they can poke holes in your valuation, uh, or they can say like, oh, we don't agree with how you did this but what both buyers and sellers need is a language of sports sponsorship. Like, how can you have a conversation around value if nobody's speaking the same language? So what we want to do, because we're a technology company, we want to use our analytics and our data to create a language around advertising so when you get a number, you know exactly what that number means. If you know exactly what that number means, everybody makes more money, right? The the buyer can say, this is where I should spend my money. The seller can say, this is why you should spend your money here. And That seems to be better for everybody.
1: Right. And you can adjust that according to people's, like, Objectives, right? So yeah, that, like, exactly. And if I want to, if I'm Jeremy's concretes and I want clients out of this, that's different than hey, I'm Pepsi and I want to, generally speaking, build my brand. I'm not expecting like, you know, people to go to the store and buy Pepsi. Well, maybe, not, but maybe
0: yes, maybe no. But right, exactly, different brands. Like Pepsi is a good example. Like do do you need to build brand awareness around the Pepsi brand or do people generally know the Pepsi brand versus like I, what you're talking about even is more brand perception. Do you want them to have better feelings and associations? And I think that's very much an important part of what Pepsi is doing. Um, and, and that's from no inside information. I think you can see from the activations that they've done that brand perception is definitely very important where um, – that's another thing that's been missing in sponsorship. At, you know, what we, well, what I should say, what I think has been missing in sponsorship valuation is creating specific valuations for specific companies for specific opportunities, right? Pepsi should get a different value than an Oracle, right? They're completely different businesses. Pepsi is a B two C or right. wants retail customers. Oracle wants enterprise customers. Why should they have the same value? Yet typically, that's they have been given the same value. So it just doesn't make sense. Uh, from our perspective, so we've made adjustments based off those factors.
1: So let's talk about you personally here, because yeah. you are one of the grittiest entrepreneurs I know. Hmm. So I want to, I want to, I want to hear. Uh, you know, I was, I was joking around about the fact that you, you know, you have a beard because it, <laughs> it, it limits your spend on razors. Exactly. Um, tell us about some of the sacrifices.
0: Well, I, I will say I probably have a beard because my girlfriend recommended that I, ha- I should have a beard, and I jokingly say maybe she wanted to see less of my face, I, particularly as I, with I the wear and tear. If, if she didn't say it, or you didn't say it, I was going to say <laughs> exactly it. right. So so, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, I think you're you're right. There is a level of grittiness. I'm not sure the grittiest. You know, you've had a lot of entrepreneurs in here. They've all worked really hard. I mean, the definition of entrepreneur. I mean, maybe it's just because
1: I saw it personally. Yeah, you know? I, I, right. I, mean, I saw how hard. I mean, you were you were working at MBA Mission, a full time job. Yeah, and nothing was being was being you know left behind at Block Six Analytics. You were just working two full-time jobs to keep yourself going. And if I recall, a lot of working at MBA Mission was actually just to fund Block 6 analytics, you know, just to keep that going.
0: uh, And that's something I think we'll talk about a little bit later is the funding process for a company. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were using the money, you know, both personally and, you know, for me to survive personally, but also to help fund the company and fund the company's growth. And as we were iterating and developing the technology, we would use the money from MBA Mission in order to help fund the business. And you're right. I mean, it is... That is not atypical from an entrepreneurial perspective, is that you have to do, you know, especially if you're not going to raise capital, or either you don't have the opportunity or you choose not to raise capital and you're not personally wealthy, you have to be able to fund the money and you need capital as the blood of the business. So you're going to have to work hard, you're going to have to work a lot. And that's just the necessity of the idea. And, you know, one of the reasons I kept working, on besides I have a passion for sports, is I did think that the industry was going to eventually come and meet with the idea. The technology would get where it needs to go. The industry was going to look for this information. We got enough traction early on to say, you know, people are interested in what we're doing, um, and we just need to be able to build this at scale and get more people involved. And that's what we've been doing, particularly over the past 12 months. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, it just takes a lot of work. I mean, you have to work really hard and there's, you know, there's a romantic idea of entrepreneurship, you know, whether you're thinking about, uh, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs or even um, the Steve Cases or whatever the idea is that you'll have this great idea and, you know, if if you have a great idea, you can turn it into a great business. And whether or not you think my company has a great idea or not, it's just not easy to turn an idea into a business and that's something you learn every day as an entrepreneur.
1: I have like I think I counted thirty-one questions here, and uh, <laughs> we're at question four. So uh, maybe I, do like, a little I, rapid fire. Yeah, I was, well, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just gonna, we can always. Uh, we'll bring you back for a uh, you know a triple play episode. We yeah. actually did that for one for one individual yeah. once came back. Um, so, um, but I, you know, I was always interested. I, I was also always really impressed by the fact that like you never really doubted that you were going to succeed, like as at least from, from an external <laughs> perspective, you were like very, very certain that this was going to work. I mean, were there moments where you are like, ever considered throwing in the towel? I mean, beyond yeah. the regular moments, like I consider throwing in the towel every once while. Well, I think there like, were a lot of those regular yeah. moments,
0: and I think there definitely are. Mo- I mean, like, you know, you're always kind of, you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but when you're talking about entrepreneurship, there's, you know, it's a little bit of and for lack of a better term, is a little mania, right? There's like really big highs, there's really big lows. It's rarely that you're necessarily like comfortably going. I mean, that's the point. Right. One of the points of entrepreneurship is that you're at these highs and lows. Right. So there were a lot of there are definitely a lot of highs, you know, especially when you're starting out, and I hate using cliches, although I'm gonna use one now, is like it's a lot of, you know, one step forward, two step backwards when you're getting started. And you want to get to the point where it's two steps forward, one step backward, and then obviously just going forward. But Um, you know, when you're going backwards and you're iterating on new technology or something doesn't work or a deal falls through, you know, you do question it. And, you know, when you're looking at your bank balance and the cash flow is getting lower than you would like, and, you know, you know you have demands for your cash flow on going forward and you got to figure out where the next dollar is coming from. Absolutely. You know, you have to, you know, a sane person would have to doubt whether that makes sense. But I think the confidence was you know, like, I knew the industry well. I was in process of writing a book about it. I was in, you know, I was talking to a lot of people. It was clear that there was interest in what we were doing, at least from a certain number of people, particularly some early adopters. And, you know, it, it, by having some demonstrable proof that this idea was good, um, or that the idea would resonate with our
1: clients, enabled me to keep going. So, so I mean, so what is that? I mean, t- tell us about that process of making that first sale, like going into yeah. someone's you know, Office, who is a decision-maker, you know, high up in the sports world, I'm assuming— and uh, maybe not. <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, okay, well, so tell, us, tell us the story. Why am <laughs> I painting a picture that may not have existed? How does a guy walk in with an idea and, and, and get that first corporate sale? Well,
0: uh, there's, a, there's a few different ways. And essentially, in a, so I, and I think we'll go through this, or you we went through this in the introduction, but you know, I teach a class called Entrepreneurship in Sports at, at Northwestern in the Masters of Sports Administration program. And one of the things that we talk about, we focus on, is you have to reduce the risk, right? There was this old saying, which doesn't really apply now, like nobody got fired for hiring IBM. right Right. it's there's a safe choice that you can do so you have to show in particular and this is something i've personally just gotten better with over time and i still think i have some ways to go but you have to be able to communicate why this is important and valuable to this person in particular how are you going to make this person look good by taking on your product or service offering right and if you can say like yes you could go with whatever the equivalent of is ibm but here is how you are going to be here's how you are going to benefit and or here's what you are going to lose if you don't sign up with our service offering. That is something that you can clear. If you can clearly communicate that customer proposition, it reduces the risk because you can show them and you can make it very clear how something is going to be better. So with the University of Hartford, which was our first client, again, not I love you. Obviously, they were our first client. They do some really interesting work. It's a division one uh, uh especially in basketball and baseball and uh, Division I college program. But obviously, it's not like the biggest program um, in the world. Uh, but they were specifically, because it's University of Hartford, in their backyard is the University of Connecticut, right? And they specifically had a competitive dynamic where they had to differentiate themselves from the University of Hart- uh, University of Connecticut. So they wanted to use the system to say, you know, a little bit of what's called judo strategy, right? Use the strength of the University of Connecticut against itself. So the University of Connecticut is large. So if you want a customizable individual sponsorship that directly fits your needs, you should go to the University of Hartford and using our approach in order to communicate that value would generate incremental revenue growth that they wouldn't have gotten before. And because I I was able to articulate it enough, um, what the the vision of the company was and how it could work. That's how we were able to sign them on as a client. And, you know, the hardest client is always the first client. And once you're able to get one client, then we were able to move on to other clients. We, you know, we started with the Minnesota Timberwolves. Then we ended up um, moving into uh, the Minnesota United. So somebody from the Minnesota Timberwolves went to the Minnesota United, which is going to be the newest uh, MLS team uh, starting the season, starting soon or it might have already started by the time you heard this. Um, You're going to leave to play goal for them, or are you going <laughs> to stick with uh, <laughs> Well, it depends on if you they want. Yeah, you know, I know. You it depends on if they them. want to lose or not, yeah. but uh, <laughs> that's their strategy, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and then with, from that, we built out, you know, then we've added in the 76ers and the Browns and... And to be clear, we don't. I just want to be very clear. People ask us, we don't only lo- work with teams that have struggled on the court or on the <laughs> field. Um, you know, we 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 talked about it again by this time. Hopefully, we're working with the Dallas Cowboys, and we work with teams in the NBA and NHL. Uh, in addition to Pepsi and Gatorade, and you know, those kind of build on each other yeah. as we go.
1: Forward. I mean, I, with so many teams out there, you know, I mean, I, you know, there's just the, there's so many professional sports teams. It's not just the big four leagues, which are right. arguably the big three leagues, but there are, Ooh. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, oh, ri- I'm, ri- I'm ripping hockey there. I was going to say, like, I don't uh, know. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, you're talking about, like, you know, there's minor league teams uh, you know, sure. in every sport, and, I mean, I, we don't realize how, obviously, how, how, like, these college teams, and they're just so vast. How do you know where to use a little Buffett parlance, point the elephant gun, so to speak? Like, where, well, how do you start to, to attack this market?
0: Yeah, what's nice about the sports industry as compared to potentially under, other industries, it is very network intensive, and people definitely talk to each other. They go to job to job. And if, you, if you're if you able to break in, it is very difficult to break into the sports industry, but if you are able to break in, um, there's a lot of referrals that can happen. And the 76ers have provided us with a lot of referrals. Like I said, the Timberwolves provided us ref- with referrals. Uh, as you start to gain a little bit of traction, uh, people want to see new ideas and new um New ways of doing things. So, you know, we've recorded a case study that we'll be publishing soon with Pepsi. So, the idea of Pepsi getting value will enable us to help grow, particularly on the not on the team side, but on the brand side of our business. So, um, in sports, luckily, it is a very um, referral based business, but also you have to understand where the revenue is coming from. So while there are a lot of different sports teams, there are also like, you know, there's a, you can say the fortune 1000 companies, right? Are there really 1000 sports organizations that are going to use our, our system? We hope so, but that's getting to 1000 is a lot more difficult where are there, you know, in the fortune 1000. There's obviously, that's just 1,000 companies right there, a lot of them who spend a lot of money in sports. So, you know, w- looking at the company side, looking at the agency side, looking at where you can generate revenue at scale. And that's really what, you know, uh, a VC backed company needs to do. It needs to be able to generate revenue at scale. Uh, and that's what we're really focused on. So, finding those opportunities
1: that allow us to do that is helpful. So, I don't know where to, where to go. We're way off script, doesn't matter. <laughs> but, uh, like, I, what's also, so, I mean, another thing that's interesting is that, like, Companies evolve. At the beginning, it's just you. And you right. are scrappy and gritty. And I mean, I to give one example, I mean, I, I guess this is more recent, but like, I just called you one day and was like, hey, I think I'm going to meet the, just inadvertently, I'm going to meet, uh, you know, I'm not hanging in these circles. I'm going to meet the owner of the Islanders. I want to be in New York, like, in 12 hours, and you were there. right? Um, which, of course, you know, one does. It's only it's a cheap flight. But still, like, you know, you're just, you're ready to go. But, you know, so it, it, it's different from, like, between, um you know, being your being yourself and getting stuff done, and then like switching yes. to where you're managing other people, right? And you know, that's a tough transition for a lot of people, me included. And yeah. you know, I mean, what was that transition like? Like, what kind, what kind of manager are you? Because <laughs> you know, you're such a intense guy in your own yeah. work. You know, I mean, are you a hands off manager? Are you hands on? So, my, Michael, my question, sorry.
0: No, no, I, it's a very good question. I mean, this is something we talk about in the class, right? As you go from. Uh, you know, yourself and as you continue to grow, it's a completely different skill set, right? Managing people is different than creating and monetizing a product and a service offering. And being able to successfully manage people requires uh, a different skill set. And what I try to do, and you can, I guess, ask my employees off the record if I do this successfully, but the idea is that what we try to focus is what's good for anyone is what's good for everyone, right? You want to incentivize employees to do and have the activities that make it so when they individually are successful, the, the company as a whole is successful. And for me and for us, it really is what I want to do is I want to hire really smart people and we've thankfully done that really smart really capable people and being in sports helps because a lot of people like being in sports but a lot of our employees have no actually no interest in sports and they're just interested in the challenge uh, and we can go through that because it's a really funny <laughs> there's a couple of really funny stories there but um, the the idea is that if you use like i want to say like this is what i want to have done like i want you know we have a new idea potentially for a new product or we have a new idea for how we want to get a new client on board or we have a new idea or we have our current products and our current systems and i would say this is what i want them to do now you go figure out how you want to do it so what i we try to do is have meetings, but limit the number of meetings. So we want to give people the time to really think about and have a creative process. And one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot, I think, is, you know, having ownership, right? If they, they do, have, all employees obviously have equity, but having ownership in the product themselves. So we've had employees when we've fortunately been in the press a lot, uh, or relatively speaking a lot for a company of our size, And, you know, when employees see us in the press, they're happy to show it, they're ecstatic to show it to their parents and to their loved ones. And it's because they feel balled in. And I think it's because, you know, I am very intense as a person, especially when it comes to this stuff. And you're very intense about, you know, your company. It's your company, it's, I hate saying your baby, because obviously you actually have babies and I don't. (laughs) But like, it's like, you know, you put a lot, you know, you put a lot of time and energy and effort into this. And, you know, these employees have come on board, particularly for us, a lot have come on board recently and to get them bought in quickly is something that you want to do so Fortunately for us, we have employees who had experience in—you know—some of them who had experience in space and clearly understood what we were trying to do, and they were bought into the mission early. And some of the employees were just like, "This is a really interesting challenge, and you're giving me the opportunity at a relatively young age to go address this challenge." So, finding people where they have ownership that have really meaningful impact on the business, and allowing them to do that is important while still managing them and making sure the company's moving forward.
1: So, you, you are an intense guy, but you're also—you're—but <laughs> you're, you're also a chill guy in a weird way. Yeah, s- to be, so I mean, you—you you know. You know, your intensity is sort of like quiet and internal. what 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 ruffles your feathers in terms of running your managing your teams?
0: <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I, I think what ruffles the feathers is uh, there's a few things. One is like you try to be as hands-off as possible, but when things go wrong, you know you want to dive in and fix it as quickly as possible. And I, I you know, you were talking about before being a solo founder, uh, for some companies they do not have solo founders some companies it's better to have co-founders uh, particularly ones that have technical experience where I don't have core technical experience where I built out the the analytical models um, we now have a CTO who's implementing the technology and knows the, the you know and is building out the code and the structure for that um, you know and if something goes wrong with the technology it's not like I can go in there and fix it and do the coding um, and that's something that we have to rely on other people to do And as much as I like to say, like, yes, I want them to go and do it, when something goes wrong, it's really hard to sit there and let the other, you know, let other people do their jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm still getting better at. And on the flip side, you know, I've said we've gotten a lot more market adaption fit, but, like... It's still hard when somebody says, like, you know, we're interested in doing this, but we don't necessarily want to move forward because, again, you still feel like they're not necessarily rejecting the company. They're rejecting you as a person, right? Mm -hmm. Because even as we continue to grow and hopefully we'll grow out to be, you know, a huge company, um, you know, a billion-dollar company, but it's still, at the end of the day, this is my idea and, you know, uh, and something that I thought of. And we've got a lot of great people helping to build on my vision, but it still kind of is disappointing if they – Reject the product, even though because it still kind of feels like they're rejecting you in a little bit. So, uh, I would say those are the two big things that, that come up. And then, you know, um, and then the third big thing, and this is not, this is pretty much for all companies, is that as we continue to grow and take on venture money, you have to deal with more investors. And investors, rightfully so, want to have input and, and want to be able to help you grow the business. And they're not times you're always going to see eye to eye, and that's natural. Uh, in these types of situations. So that's a new challenge that we've been dealing with more frequently now.
1: So, okay, so that, that's a good segue. Yeah. So you got, you you know, you raised some money from from uh, from investors, um, sort of a hybrid like seed series A round. Yeah. Um, there was friends and family in it, including this friend. And, uh, <laughs> and then, uh, but the family part is interesting, right? So I think your yeah. uncle's in it, your parents are in the, in the friend's My uncle right? was in it, so he's not in it now. Not, but okay. he was, but my, yeah, my... My parents are definitely
0: involved. How, um, how
1: frequently your parents bring it up? Are they like only all the time? Only all the time. Only <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: the biggest theme now is that see, they I want figured... to use the money f- to retire to Florida. So uh, again, going back to Jewish stereotypes,
1: right? So I, I, see, I, f- I figure, I figure there's one of two answers on that one: either never or all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's definitely a yeah. polar one of the okay. other. Yeah. So they're they're in all the time.
0: And to be fair, they don't like at, like not in an intense way, but it's of kind of in a jokey way. Like but it's definitely but like
1: they want to know. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they want the shareholder report as much as possible. <laughs> okay. Um, what is what is the what is the the publicly reported is one point eight million dollars? Um, what does that allow you to do? Um, you know, what's the difference between before and after that?
0: Yeah, I mean, what it really does allow you to do. And I, when I was unfortunately when I went to business school, they really hammered home the issues that come up with raising money. You know, you do have, there's a lot of, besides the fact that you get dilution, is you know, you have to have people involved. It takes a long time to do it. You know, if you can fund from operational capital or bootstrap it as much as you can, you know, it's often recommended to do that where I think we waited a little too long to really try to raise money. And part of it was we, you know, at, at a point where we were trying to raise money, it wasn't always as easy as just like, oh, I wanna go raise money now, let's go raise money. It takes a long time. And that was a big part of my day to day as we were growing as a business, was closing out at this finance round. What this money does allow us to do is allow us to look at what we like to look at is, you know, business process and technology, uh, or sorry, business technology and people. So from a business side, we can be much more aggressive in going out and targeting clients. And we really are focused on acquiring as many clients as possible right now to move from a, um, you know, a seed stage company really to a, and we're really in a growth phase right now and continue and facilitate our growth because we can go and we have the confidence that, you know, if we need to invest more resources in what we need to do, we can do that. And then from a technology perspective in particular, we're able to grow out our technology resources and and start to create and service new products at scale. So in particular, machine learning, um, we have a, what's called our media analysis platform, which is really focused on how do you identify television viewable objects and signs. So, you know, if you're watching a game, if you're a sports fan at all, you've probably seen, you know, sign, particularly at NBA games, signs on television. So, we have a system that can automatically tell you the value, how close it was to the center of the screen, how basically give a clarity score, how clear was it on the screen, how much of the screen it took up, and the time on screen. And we can get the results back. And into our system within forty eight hours. Uh, and that's something we having the the money allows us to build a more robust technology platform where we can do that at speed and at scale. And the last thing it helps to do, and again, this is not atypical for any organization, allows us to hire more people. So, right. We have a significant, knock on wood, we have a significant demand for our service offering right now, um, and we have to be able to scale up our people. And we're not necessarily, because we're a technology and a scalable technology company, we don't want to add on a ton of people, but we do need to add on more people to make sure we can service the demand that we have and continue to grow as a business. So the money allows us to hire uh, more people and be more more competitive in the marketplace for human
1: capital. So if you could go back, uh, this is a ludicrous question, but if you could go back, And just because you, you, you have some, they won't be named, but you have some legitimate venture investors in in, in your round. (laughs) I don't know what illegitimate investors (laughs) are, but like venture (laughs) investors would be,
0: but yes. I I guess
1: uh, (laughs) uh, compared to illegitimate ones like, like me and, and your parents, would you get us out of the round? Could you, could, if you you know, would you sleep better at night without your friends and family, you know, in this? Or is it just like, hey, they're, no,
0: I mean, I think it's, it's, it's actually a a really good question. I'm surprised nobody's really ever asked me that before. And yeah, I do my homework. Yeah, flattery gets you everywhere. That's what I tell people. So, Um, Um, So Sucking up to an investor can't hurt, right? Um, (laughs) No, I actually don't think so because I think all the investors had the right perspective, right? All of the friends and family have been helpful... You know, not just on a financial level, but on a, uh, a on a business level in terms of making introductions, but also just on a human level, right? They're all invested in me, and they would like my parents would be invested in me anyway, even if they weren't invested as human beings. Like you're a friend, right? You're invested in me. You've seen what we're doing, and it's not like they're, you know, we're not saying a bet. Like I was joking about my parents' retirement, but they're certainly not betting their retirement on my right. company being successful. So if everybody, you know, if you're very upfront with your friends and family saying, you know, the risk, and we were talking about this before, but it's something like 25% of venture back companies are successful. Successful, right. That means 75% of them fail. Right. So, like, if you're saying, like, and the same with the stock market, right? If you know going in that the stock market, like, over time, the stock market accretes in value and the entirety of the stock market accretes in value and has for a certain amount, like, you know, decades, essentially. Yeah. Um, if you know what the risks are going in, I'd, it'd be great to have them as, as investors. But the what the institutional capital allows you to do, one is it you know, we're talking about risk profile, having institutional capital and having really, you know, like you're saying, legitimate, so to speak, investors uh, allows you to, it puts you in a different space and it puts you it enables, it enables you to talk to people in a different way, and you're just perceived in a different way, right. not just by other investors but by other clients, and it makes it much more easier to raise money in the future. So I think for us we actually got the best of all worlds, right? We were able to get people who really bought in and believed in us at first, but also getting really, you know like you said, really uh, great people to back us who are really you know invested in our company's growth and can be with us for a long period of time as, or, or whatever period of time it is to help us grow a, as a company.
1: How much better, like considering that that trajectory of you know, hey, I've got my parent, my this kind of it was like a slow boil through that round, right? Um, well, it's so,
0: yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? It was a slow boil until it wasn't, right? As soon right, as right. as soon as there was, um, you know, I think there was demand, and I think we were getting, and I, me personally, was getting better at pitching the business to. That was a question. Yeah. yeah, how
1: much how much better do you get? Like, what's the curve like that? You know, how many slam doors? And then you're like, <laughs> yeah. I mean,
0: I think it's also like the business was. It, it always helps when the business right. is more successful, and we were getting more clients on board. Uh, But I think it's also, you do get, I mean, whether you're doing sales, like I didn't have a sales background before I started the company, right? And I became, you were saying before, like the lead salesperson or that I was for a long time, the chief revenue officer of the company. So I had to learn how to sell, not just sell the business, but sell me personally. And that's not something I was necessarily used to doing. Now it is, as my girlfriend would say, not a prop. But (laughs) at 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 the time it was like, just not something I was used to doing. Um, and I had to get better at it. And same with investment, right? You know, investors are interested in your idea. They're interested in your business. They're interested in your future vision. But ultimately, a lot of the investors are investing in people, right? They think this is the team that can execute this idea. And this is the person in particular who's going to lead that team executing on that idea. And being able to clearly articulate your vision is absolutely critical to them believing in you as a person and believing you in you as a company. And until you get that right, which, again, uh, it's still... It takes a lot of time to get that right, and you shouldn't expect yourself to get it right um, at the beginning. And there will be some learnings, but once you get it right, you know you can really go in and feel confident that you put your best effort forward. And I think it's just right. It was an alignment for us of getting the, the messaging right, having the, the uh, business grow, and finding the right I- investors. So there's just, and there's also different. Um, we were spending a lot of time because the company is based in Chicago, and I currently live in Chicago, uh, and we have a Chicago and New York office, but. There's a completely different investment environment in Chicago than there is even, not even even in Palo Alto or or California or San Francisco, but the investment uh, and the risk profile of investors in New York is just completely different than it is in Chicago.
1: You're on your way to Boston uh, for yep. the for the Sloan uh, Sports Analytics Conference, yep. the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics yeah, Conference, Nerdapalooza, is, as it's called. In I was going sort of, <laughs> to okay, you were kinder than I was. Yeah, I was going to say kind of the Woodstock of, of, of sports <laughs> analytics. Um, your book actually was was given out uh, as the as yeah the, a couple years as ago. One of the that's I guess that's the difference in the Academy Awards where you get like I don't know uh, for a shawl or something like that. Well, I, they get I, a so they, know, they get a book from Adam Grossman.
0: Yeah, the MIT Sloan right, you get a book for me. Uh, it was funny actually. So there's an Adam Grossman, who is I think is now still the, the Chief Marketing Officer of the Boston Red Sox. Oh, really? um, so both of us were there, and people went up to him and asked him to sign the book. And people went up to me asking for comments on the Red Sox. So we were jokingly saying we should each comment on either of the other, other ones. But, just walk
1: around holding hands.
0: Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the Oscars, you get a hundred thousand dollar gift bag. Where at the MIT Sloan Conference, you get my book. So I think it's a fair trade. I think it's totally <laughs> so even. even yeah. So even
1: this year, they still get your still no, get no, your no. Book it was just it's just in two thousand fifteen.
0: But okay. I am speaking at the conference. But what are you speaking on? On machine learning. On and, machine learning, and then how Pepsi used our machine learning platform to value in near real time value their relationship with the Cowboys, and that's one of the unique things about my company. We can work with both sides of a transaction. So, like I said, we worked with Pepsi; Right, they
1: both value the and, they,
0: and working with the Cowboys, which is something that it's hard to think of another company that would be able to do
1: it. So let's let's go over some of the I, now that you're coming sort of full circle here, um, you know, valuing. Value in the advertisements. I mean, are there things that you found where you're just like, "Wow!" Like people were really valuing that in the wrong way. Uh, no comment, I guess. But, <laughs> but, 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 but broadly speaking, it's, it's too much no, of a I special think, sauce. broadly
0: speaking, no, it's not even a special sauce. It's just you know, I, I, I think it. Generally speaking, I, I think um, like. There's a difference between, like I said before, there's a difference between business to consumer and business to business companies. And I don't think necessarily, like, and this is just generally, not necessarily with any of our clients, right? Does it make sense for a company like Oracle to advertise during the Super Bowl when while there are 113 million people watching the Super Bowl, doesn't make sense for them because there aren't 113 million enterprise clients who are going to probably make a decision if, to use
1: Oracle or not, right? Right. It just doesn't make sense. So just breaking that into plain English, what you're saying is so like, yeah, they're being charged on like a per viewer basis so, when yeah, millions and millions of question. viewers have no So the standard, adver- value.
0: Yeah, the standard advertising metric is called uh, CPM, which means cost per thousand impressions, right? So the way that advertising still is a lot of times valued now is, you know, when people talk about ratings and you're saying, well, the Oscars got I think it was like 33 million people. The Grammys got 26 million people. The Super Bowl gets 113 million people. People are obsessed with ratings in television because you're getting charged usually on a CPM. Essentially, how many people are watching it? The more people who are watching it, the better it is for a company because you get more people who are seeing your brand either during commercials or during television viewable signage. Now for Oracle, if the vast majority of those people are never going to make a purchasing decision, how valuable is it really to them, right? Who cares if like, Unfortunately, for you or right. well, right. not me because I guess we're technological, technology, company, but but like for most people, right? If if 112 million, let's say conservatively, of the 113 million are never going to purchase Oracle, right. why would they do that, right? Even if they, on a on a CPM basis, it might be great, but on a actual value to their business, it doesn't make any sense. So, and there's also like uh, one of the things that.
1: And again, like, I, shouldn't like, shouldn't that be obvious to, to Oracle beyond just like you know like uh, not to not not devalue investor but like shouldn't they be able to say that on their own be like I don't need a sports analytics guy to tell me like wow this is just a waste of money
0: well uh, <laughs> well I would say like again Oracle it wasn't necessarily going through this process right obviously no, no, a g- example no, but like no I mean I think that's just that's the top line examples and there's much more detailed examples and you were, you were talking about before with you know large companies do large companies need increases in brand awareness sometimes yes sometimes no but You want to know the specific situations in which they do need increases in brand awareness. And particularly when it comes to television viewable signage, like different companies will get different values. There are definitely companies, you know, one of the great uh, or arguably great television ads uh, was GoDaddy during the Super Bowl. So Mm -hmm. GoDaddy basically did a bet the company ad, which is like in the Super Bowl where they used Danica Patrick to advertise GoDaddy because nobody knew who GoDaddy was. And like everybody knew who GoDaddy was after the commercial. So that right. commercial makes a lot of sense. Right. Versus, like, right. I mean, if you're talking about a Super Bowl ad for this year's Super Bowl, it's $5 million just to buy the time for the ad. That's not even creating the ad, right. not all the, you know, whether you're going to build a social media campaign, hire actors, film it, whatever it is. So it really doesn't make sense for your business. It's just something you have right. to think about. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's just like really in depth looking at what you're trying to accomplish. And like, another good example is like Bud Light, right? Bud Light has a very extensive deal with the NFL and Budweiser as a company, which makes a lot of sense when they are able to use the you know the the, the Bud Le- the Budweiser slogan is beer with your team on it, right? When they put your when they put the logos of NFL teams on their cans, they get something like a twenty five percent lift in sales. Mm-hmm. So it's like that's I'm not sure that's obvious that that would right. happen, but that is something that does happen, right. and that is a really valuable sponsorship. So again, it's those right. types of things where you can create insights.
1: To do that, are are you able to watch a game and enjoy it, or you can you shut it down? (laughs) Can you seriously? I mean, I I know it sounds sounds ridiculous, but can Uh, you uh, turn it off? It was actually one
0: one of my biggest worries about starting this business. Is like, I love sports. Do I want to? And something we were we having a little debate about. you know, uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame earlier, and it's like, if I knew all the... D- and fantasy football, like, I love fantasy football. Could I do fantasy football without building out some model that would say, like, this is who I should draft? And, like, if I didn't do that, would I really feel bad about it? So, yes, the short answer is, yes, I am able to turn off that part of my brain. I still... So I'm uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. So uh, from a pure fandom perspective, I'm a Washington fan. But I did go... So the Dallas Cowboys are a... Uh, Dallas Cowboys and Washington Redskins are big rivals and I told Dallas the Dallas Cowboys that I would immediately sell out my fandom if they were to sign on as a client. So I'm definitely a complete sellout on that front.
1: Well, as you know, I guess we have time for one last question. As you know, where do my, my is live when it comes to sports the Winnipeg Jets? I think I'm one of the few rabid fans outside of the Winnipeg metropolitan area. Uh, are we going to win the cup And statistically speaking, win the cup in 2018 or 2019?
0: So my investor response is you'll win it in both years.
1: So get ready. <laughs> it's in. The Stanley Cup's coming to Winnipeg.
0: Uh, but the, the longer answer is it's, you know, actually this goes to a, a kind of a larger point that I've made before in an article um, but like competitive balance in sports, is there a lot of competitive balance? Now the leagues do a great job, or, or attempt to do a great job, to try to create competitive balance. You know, when we talk about competitive balance, it's like you know having the draft where the worst team gets the first pick, and having a salary cap, so and having you know revenue distributed among teams. Um, those are all things that leagues take in order to have competitive balance. The outcome hasn't always gotten to competitive balance. Like mm. in the NHL, there have been certain teams that have you know more recently the Chicago Blackhawks, Black LA mm. Kings, and even the Penguins you know, those three teams have dominated Stanley cups. And, you know, this year it looks like knock on wood, the Washington capitals are the favorite to win the Stanley cup, particularly after their recent trade uh, for a a defenseman whose name I can't pronounce, but uh, yeah, exactly. So like, so like in the capitals, but the capitals have consistently made the playoffs year in and year out. So teams across all leagues have been consistently um, performing. So, Unfortunately, I think it is probably unlikely for your Jets to necessarily crack into in the 18 or 19, but maybe in the future. Yeah, well, I'm and when wrong. they do,
1: we'll go to Winnipeg and we'll have a good time. I think you're wrong because uh, we have <laughs> <you> incredible, <laughs> incredible... And Patrick Laine, um and everyone can just log off now, the rest of this car. Yeah, know, I was going to say, uh, stop listening, uh, we heard
0: the sound Nick, of all these podcasts stopping right Nikolai
1: now. Nikolai <laughs> Ehlers, Patrick Line and, you know, it, I mean... Pat Gliding, rookie, thirty goals this year. Nikolaj Ehlers, I don't know how many goals he has. Just I mean, just a phenomenal talent, the best Danish player to ever play in the NHL. Yeah, well, what- only one season in. Well, what's their Corsi stat? and What's their Fenwick stat? right? I don't remember any of that. Is. I, I don't know if <laughs> Danes have been in the NHL ever, actually. But uh, I know he's the best. Yeah. Um, you're going to hear from this team. Uh, you'll hear from Adam Grossman too. Adam, uh, my good friend. Uh, thank you for joining us. Good luck at the That's Sports best. Analytics Conference.
0: It's great to be here.
1: This is uh, it's always good for us fun. to get on
0: the on the microphone.
1: Yeah, I hope. Uh, I hope. That uh, some of our other good friends uh, listen to this, and uh, you know, maybe you'll make it class class re- required listening as well. You know, well. I Adam, if, did we if,
0: mention Adam's a professor? Yeah, yeah I yeah. talked about it earlier, yeah, but of yeah. course, of course, it's required listening. So, <laughs> if nothing else, yeah, you got to make your student. What's the point of being a professor if you can't make them listen and read and watch all the stuff you're doing?
1: Exactly. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Uh, signing off.